with you. The Lord's praise. May have you turn with me this morning <clears throat> again to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12. If you're visiting, we've been in a study in the book of Romans for a little while. I mark this as, I don't think it's the same online, we might have missed one, but I mark this, I think, as 43rd message from the book of Romans. We're in great shape. I looked at the and listened to several of Dr. Cairn's messages on Romans from 20-ish years ago. I think by this point in Romans, he was in the 80s, so he was either doing a much better job, which I'm sure that's the case, or rambling a little more, that might have been the case too, um, commenting on other thoughts that came along too, but um, I trust that we're knowing benefit. As I said, we've preached from Romans many times, but never preached through it, and that's what we are pursuing at this point. We're coming today to the closing part of the 12th chapter. <clears throat> Obviously, those opening two verses, some of the most familiar in all the book, and that's in a book full of familiar texts. But that, obviously, is the context. So, coming into verse 17 in our reading, Romans 12, 17. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, amen. We trust again the Lord to bless the public reading of His inspired Word. And let's do bow our heads together. Ask the Lord to give us help as we consider His Word today. Our Heavenly Father, we pause again. And as a body of believers would come to the throne of grace and ask simply again for help in preaching and help in hearing. We have often used the phrase that you would hide the preacher and the listener behind the cross. Or that we would not have immediate thoughts of ourselves or others with regard to specific things as it were, but just asking for grace, for growth in grace in our own souls. May our mind and heart be, again, for preacher and listener alike. If there's not a word for anyone else this day, let there be a word for me. Lord, speak to me. So give grace in that very thing. And help us in these moments we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. After the giant two verses that opened this 12th chapter, we have sought to look at the remainder of the chapter, last Lord's Day and this Lord's Day, under two headings and in two sections. Last week we considered the section from verses 33 rather to 16 under the heading 
how to treat my brother. We're coming today to look at the remainder of the chapter under the heading, How to Treat My Neighbor. Now these divisions, or this division, is not watertight. We could apply some of the things that were in the text, the verses that we considered last Lord's Day, certainly to our neighbor, particularly in the closing parts of that section. But by the time we reach verse 17, it is clear the Apostle has left those particular relationships that belong to us with our fellow brethren and is speaking of how we relate to those that are outside. Now this isn't an exhaustive study. There are many other topics, pieces of this that we find throughout the epistles and really you can find it in the Old Testament as well. But here we come to discuss this fact that as believers, we suggested and dwelt on this a lot last Lord's Day, we have been taken from one community, from that binding principle that connects those that are outside of Christ. We've been taken from that community and placed in a new community, those that are born from above. And Romans has been dealing with this, obviously, under the great banner of the doctrine of salvation, the justification of sinners. But the gospel doesn't just touch us when it comes to moving from being in a state of condemnation before God to being in a state of justification and acceptance before God. Of course, the gospel does more than just the legal work that needs to be done on our behalf. It touches our hearts. It touches our very lives. And so as we come to deal with those changed lives, this new community... Well, this new community and we as individuals within this community still live in a world that's fallen. We still live in a world that is contrary to grace. This spiritual community has a visible expression, but it's not just the visible church, or as we used the historic title last Lord's Day, the church militant. There's also... Again, the, the change that takes place in the life of the individual believer. And how a Christian relates to this world is really part of the basics of Christianity. We're not of the world anymore. Christ plainly told His disciples, the world is not going to know you. The world is going to reject you. The world knows its own. And the world's going to reject you because it's rejected me. And you're not of the world anymore. You're now part of my own. Well, I want to pause and suggest here for a moment that this very basic universal truth of what it is to be a Christian, to be taken out of the world, to now be different from the world, it's basic, it's clear, and yet can we suggest it has some tricky spots. I mean, you can even look at it from the standpoint of some of the different texts of Scripture. God so loved the world. Most famous verse in all the Bible. And we read from the very same author in his first epistle that we are not to love the world. So, there's some context through all of these relationships, if you will. And I would argue that 
Well, their tendencies in generations often, I would argue and suggest at least, that the previous generation of Christians perhaps committed some errors with regard to the church or the Christian's relationship to the world. It drifted in spirit, at least in some circles, and I know there's more than one circle, but a circle many of us are familiar with and are from, it drifted somewhat into the direction of isolationism. Well, let me just suggest again, this was often in reaction to the extremes of casting off of restraint in the world. But can I just suggest to you that spiritual problems always require spiritual remedies? But we often have the tendency to try and answer spiritual problems mechanically. We're going to fix it. I think about that often when it comes to child rearing and education. There are struggles in the lives of young people often when they make that transition from youth to adulthood. Who am I? Where am I going? Am I just doing everything because mom and dad told me to? Who am I? One generation looked at young people and said, man, we're struggling there. It's those public schools. We've got to fix that. Christian schools. Guaranteed outcome. We send our kids to Christian schools now. Problem solved. Guess what? Kids are still sinners. Oh, that's the problem is the Christian schools. You, you, you can't have age segregated. That's homeschool. That'll fix every problem. Guess what? How many decades are we into homeschooling? Are all the spiritual problems gone? No. I don't say that as an advocate of any of the above or whatever. It's just an illustration of how often we want to have a mechanical answer to a spiritual problem. One of the ways the church has throughout its history dealt with the problem of believers interacting with the world has been really a mechanical answer. You want the ultimate expression of that? Go to monasticism. You want the ultimate expression of monasticism? I wish I had thought to look and get the names. Anybody familiar with those in ancient church history, early Middle Ages? They were called the pillar saints. They literally built platforms on poles and lived there and had people shimmy up food to them. One guy, one of my seminary mates, was really impressed with this guy and memorized his name. I wish I had as well, but he had the record, kind of like Methuselah. Well, this guy was the Methuselah of pillar saints. It was decades. He spent on a pole. He was not worldly. Monastics attempt to take their bodies out of the world instead of striving to take the world out of their hearts. Well, I could give illustrations of how I say the previous generation sought to answer the problems with worldliness by drifting toward isolationism. We're in a generation now in the church that is reacting to those tendencies 
and is committing some errors in the direction of what we might call immersion or contamination. We're going to win the world. We've got to live among them. In order to live among them and be friends with them, we need to be a little more like them than we have been. Is that the answer? How's that working out? In some circles, there's precious little distinction between the lives of the openly worldly and those that profess the name of Christ. I say spiritual problems require spiritual solutions, not mechanical ones, and yet that's the way we often want to go. Turn with me, if you would, just a few pages over to the book of 1 Corinthians. I want to read you a couple of verses, 1 Corinthians 5, where the Apostle makes an interesting comment. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9, Paul says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. Now what is Paul saying here? He says, I've written to you about not keeping company with these people, but you can't go out of the world. You can't, unless you want to be a pillar saint, you, you can't cease all connection or contact with unsaved people. Believers are going to interact with the unsaved. Believers are going to rub shoulders, rub elbows with the unsaved. But Paul, I think in giving that statement to the Corinthians and elsewhere we find in the Scriptures, just puts before us what is a common phrase that we would use, and I think it's a very valid one. As Christians, we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. That change of citizenship, that change of belonging, and of course accompanied with a change of lifestyle, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so believers are in the world, not of the world. There are a thousand and one different ways that we'll need to apply this every day. There's no preacher... There's no seminary, there's no conference or seminar that can give you a notebook that's big enough to answer those thousand and one questions that will come every day. We need instead to have hearts that are understanding and rightly applying the gospel. We mingle with the unsaved, can I suggest out of necessity. We mingle with the unsaved in some areas of pursuing the common good. I don't know, make up an example. Let's say there's two feet of snow in Winston-Salem. 
I noticed they salted the roads on the way to church. Am I missing something? Anyway, I digress. Well, it may be that several neighbors bind together to clear a particularly bad spot in the road. And they bring their shovels. Am I to keep my shovel at home unless all of those guys down there are Christians? I can't help them if they're not Christians. It might be very convenient. Oh, there's an unsaved guy there. I don't have a shovel today. No, we mingle and interact with the ungodly, I say, in a variety of ways. But we're not like them anymore. Our lifestyles, our interests, our pursuits, our affections, and in many cases our morals are different. Believers are, I say, mingling and often like the world in areas of necessity and common good but not in areas of lifestyle. It's where you may go to the company gathering. I don't know, the annual report. But the after party maybe is not where you remain. And I say that is only a a weak example of the thousand and one different things that we would have to wrestle with all the time. But Paul comes in these verses that we've read today to deal with what we've suggested as how to treat my neighbor. He goes in a general and somewhat focused commentary here with regard to our attitude toward those that are without. We've seen so many texts already in the chapter about how to treat my brother. Now he, I say, speaks to us about how to treat my neighbor. And I want to go through these three verses today, or these several verses today, and just give you three statements of summary in what we find here. There are several phrases here that are difficult. I'm going to come to suggest some searching with regard to several of these particular phrases, one in particular. But I just want to put three simple statements before you today to summarize Paul's limited treatment here of how I am to treat my neighbor. And the first statement is this. Don't answer sin with sin. Don't answer sin with sin. Let me go ahead and just give you all of these lest I get carried away and don't punch them out sufficiently going forward. That's our first statement. Don't answer sin with sin. Secondly, leave judgment to God. Leave judgment to God. And then thirdly, do good instead. Do good instead. So firstly today, don't answer sin with sin. Answering sin with sin, or to use Paul's exact terms here, recompense to no man evil for evil. Can we say this is an illustration of worldliness? When we see a tendency, when we see something that is common to the unsaved, sometimes it is so common and the age is so perverse that it's accepted. Sometimes, such as the nation I grew up in that doesn't exist anymore, 
Sin isn't really openly accepted. It's kind of generally understood and practiced, but we can't just say out loud, we enjoy this and it's okay to do that. Well, now it's being said out loud. But I say, here's an example of a universal, worldly tendency. The fallen heart is ready to answer sin with sin. How many parents are here? I won't take a show of hands, but among that show of hands, it's not up. Second question, how many of you parents that have more than one child have had one of the children say to you in a point of discipline, he did it first. He hit me first, so I now have the right to hit him back. I was sinned against, so I sinned back. You kind of wonder what part of the law the child is quoting from when they offer this defense to the parent. Well, you know that the Bible, God's law, says don't hit them back. You hit them back and you tried to say it was okay. It isn't. How about if we t-shirt theology? I'll probably show some of my age here. These were old sayings. I don't get mad. I get even. Then there was a sequel to that. I don't get even. I get ahead. I have a brother-in-law that has told me that 41 years ago this summer. I played a masterful trick on him the day of our wedding. He told me he would get me back someday. I'm still waiting. I hope he never listens to the audio of this sermon and I hope he's forgotten that he's promised to get ahead. It was an innocent practical joke. I'm sure whatever vengeance is coming my way will be innocent and harmless, but nonetheless, isn't this our tendency? To answer sin with sin. But here a principle, a truth throughout the Word. Render to no man evil for evil. For as our Lord spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, turn instead the other cheek. Here's something that is foreign to the fallen heart. I think even of the introduction of sin to this world. In an unfallen world, the problem that Paul's dealing with here wouldn't exist. We would never be sinned against. So we'd never have the tendency rise up to sin back. But it is a fallen world, and we are redeemed men in the midst of a fallen world. And so sin and being sinned against is part of our reality. It's part of our experience. But as believers, as those that have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, we're to shine a little light of a redeemed humanity back into this world of fallen humanity. 
And one of the chief ways is not to answer sin with sin. We read recompense no man to no man evil for evil. He follows with the phrase provide things honest in the sight of all men. I was interested to see commentators volleying back and forth on the meaning of that phrase. We're going to come to a lot of volleying in a couple phrases here in a moment. But some here suggest that this providing things honest in the sight of all men is to live in the world in such a way as that we comply with basically the agreed upon ethics. Everybody understands this to be good and the right way to do things and everybody agrees this is the wrong way to do things. Act that way in the world. You know, in Rome, do as the Romans do. Well, I think in some ways and in some cases, that's the principle that applies, but that's leaving men on the outside to be the judge. What if you live in a world where the restraint of evil is so far removed that the world is changing the definitions of virtues and values? We live in a world now where people, various institutions, pursuing radically different moral positions, both say they're standing up for their values. I don't think it's providing things honest, things that are honest the way all men see honesty. No, it's just according to truth, according to God's law, providing things honest, right, and it may even come to the point where in some practice, the world says that's okay. But it isn't really okay. It's a lie. It's self-serving. It injures another party. No, I'm to provide things honest by God's definition of honest in the sight of all men. And then, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. I don't think Paul's saying here that hold your temper as long as you can and then once you reach that point that you can't anymore, then let it rip. As much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Don't you be the one that introduces conflict. Conflict is going to come, hence the conditional clause. As much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. It's going to come. There are going to be points in which the peace is disturbed. The point is, don't be the one yourself that is disturbing it. I know of that phrase in Corinthians. I know that's in dealing with how to treat my brother and not so much how to treat my neighbor, but it applies to both. Believers that were going to court against one another. And Paul's astounded. He's ashamed of them. He says, what are you doing going to the ungodly to settle this matter? Can't you settle it yourselves? Isn't there a wise person among you? Can we take a little Matthew 18 and work this thing out? And even beyond that, why do you not just suffer wrong? 
instead of marring the testimony of the church, instead of bearing such a different and difficult testimony with regard to yourself, live peaceably with all men. Don't you be the one introducing conflict. But the first statement I say is, don't answer sin with sin. Secondly, leave judgment to God. Leave judgment to God. It's obvious that conflicts will come. Even if we abide by this rule, but the ungodly are not going to abide by that rule. The ungodly are not going to rather suffer wrong than to have the peace disturbed. And so we come, how do we handle that? When wrongs do surface, when sin, when conflict is put in the middle of our way, I say here's where we are to leave judgment to God. Avenge not yourselves. He says, verse 19, dearly beloved. Notice how he pauses to use an endearing title and address to the people. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Leave judgment to God. Now here's one of the several places in these verses where there's a phrase that has some debate as to its meaning. And the phrase here is, neither give place unto wrath. Believe it or not, there are three different interpretations of this phrase. And really they focus on whose wrath is in view. Is it the wrath of the person sinning against you? Is it your own wrath? Or is it the wrath of God? Well, you think about it. Some here that take it, I was actually surprised to see this. I don't know if it was really embraced or at least mentioned by evangelical commentators. But some take it as our own wrath. Somebody sins against you. Don't take vengeance on them. Find some other place to vent. You know, go out there and beat up a tree. We go out and we see any of you with trees in the front yard with a lot of bark missing. We'll know that you've taken that, what I think is not the correct interpretation of this passage. It's not making room for your own wrath elsewhere. Some suggest, and this to me at least has warrant, and part of me might lean toward this interpretation. It's the wrath of the person sinning against you. Give place unto wrath. One commentator took the the way the the verb's talking about making room, giving place. It's like an animal's charging at you and you just stand there till the last second you move out of the way he goes right on by. I don't trust animals to miss. I just get out of the way and you know before they get that close. But the place of the other person's wrath. Well, I don't know that I go with this let it run by, but there may be the mindset that's why do you not rather suffer wrong? 
just take their wrath, let them vent against you, and don't worry about it. Leave it with the Lord. Others suggest, and this perhaps contextually is the more compelling understanding, that it's God's wrath. Don't avenge yourselves. Instead, give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Here a quotation from Deuteronomy. It's actually remarkably the same text Jonathan Edwards took his Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon from, because in due time they will slide as part of that quotation from Deuteronomy. But here, leave it with the Lord. The difficulty here, I don't think it is an insurmountable difficulty, but the, the tendency could be here is to understand it in that way and said, look, don't take vengeance yourself. Leave it with God. Because God can hurt them a lot worse than you can. And so that's what you really want to do. Well, whatever the interpretation, and I think, again, contextually, this last view is the strongest. That can't be the heart that we use in leaving it with God. It's not leave it with God because He's more powerful than you are and He can hurt them worse than you can. No, it's you operate with a tainted wisdom. You operate with a fallen heart and an old man that would have a tendency to answer sin with sin. It might even have a tendency not just to get even, but to get ahead. That's why we leave it with God and not with us. He's a judge that judges righteously. And after all, here's a book that's taught us the gospel. Has God dealt with me according to my iniquities? Has He given me what I deserve? Let us leave judgment to God. So don't answer sin with sin. Leave judgment to God. But finally, do good instead. Do good instead. We read from verse 20, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, or in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Do not, or be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. The first part of this is easy enough. I say easy enough. That's with understanding, not so much in doing. If you're, doesn't say friend, doesn't even say neighbor. It says if your enemy hungers, feed him. If your enemy thirsts, give him drink. Easy enough to understand. 
The next phrase, for in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Don't know if you remember, I've said somewhere along the way, I have at last count 27 commentaries on the book of Romans. This is the first time in all 43 messages that I have taken down and looked in all 27 of those commentaries. And it's been an interesting ride. Uh, There are, I say several, yet we're going to distill it down, different interpretations of heaping coals of fire on your neighbor's head. Um, I say several. I've been impressed... Well, on a couple of things, I've been impressed with the variety of interpretations. I've been impressed with the difficulty of understanding this phrase. I've been impressed with the humility of some commentators in saying, we're not sure. I've been also surprised at the dogmatism on the part of some commentators on their particular view, and this even in some of the commentaries that I really like, and the guys are usually a little more reserved with regard to dogmatism among good interpreters. Well, again, all that to say, I'm not going to answer it for you today. Um, If these 27 men and all the others that they're reading and the interpretations of church history haven't given a conclusive answer, I think the context is clear enough how we're to, what we're to take away from this, but just that particular phrase. Let me just suggest to you where they come from. The first suggestion is that this is a work of benevolence. I didn't see this in many of the commentaries. It's been kind of not a prevailing view, but I remember hearing it preached. It made sense to me back in the days of the wood stove. People need fire. If they let their fire go out, they slept in a little too long, there weren't any coals left that morning, maybe if they could get some coals from their neighbor, that would save them a lot of time in splitting up kindling again and starting from scratch. And So give them some coals. Uh, That hasn't gotten a lot of traction. A newer interpreter, more modern commentator, has found somewhere reference to an Egyptian practice where if somebody was repentant of some particular evil, that they would manifest their repentance by publicly walking around with coals of fire on their head. More modern interpreters that have sought to find this guy's reasoning and where he got it from have said, you know, I'm not exactly sure that that says what you think it says, but anyway, uh, the New Testament doesn't usually draw from Egyptian practice a lot from the Old Testament, but not so much from Egypt. Don't find Paul quoting the pharaohs very often. Uh, So anyway, that one I don't, not quite impressed by either. But these remaining two views, I think, are the most prevalent. Some suggest that it is God's vengeance. The context, we could argue, the previous verse, Uh, We don't uh, repay. We don't avenge ourselves. Vengeance is mine, the Scripture says. I will repay, saith the Lord. So when we come here to feeding our hungry enemy, giving drink to our thirsty enemy, 
we leave them to God. In doing this good, we're just foregoing taking vengeance ourselves. We're leaving him to God, and by our good deeds, we're actually increasing the guy's guilt. And God's wrath is going to be even greater upon him. That can bring in again the delicate matter of our motive. I'm feeding you, but you don't really know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm making it worse for you later, buddy. Um, that, that, I think, clearly is not what Paul is getting at here. But the context could, in a right spirit, be the Lord will deal with him in his own way, in his own time. It's the wrath of God, again, in parallel to the verse in front. But then there's the possibility of paralleling it with the verse that follows for the remainder of the passage. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That the heaping of a coal of fires upon him is heaping upon him by our not answering sin with sin, by our, to the contrary, answering sin with good deeds, that we're going to make this guy so ashamed, we're going to heap guilt upon him. Several commentators use the analogy of metallurgy. Um, one even didn't even bring up anything else. It's obvious. People use heat to distill, get impurities out of metals. Answer of question solved. There it is. We put coals of fire on him, it's going to purge him of impurities, it's going to win him over. Well, it is possible that the ungodly can be won over by the good deeds of their neighbor, by a believer. And so, the believer's not answering sin with sin, instead, answering sin with good, Instead of hitting back, turning the other cheek, that he's overwhelmed with shame. Shame would burn upon him like a fire of coals. Well, that's a distillation, if you will, of the different views. I think it's clear, even with the difficulty of just what are these coals, Where's that coming from? The difficulty or the context and the clarity of this is as we've said in these statements summarizing the passage. Don't answer sin. Sin. That's a worldly, ungodly, self-centered response. Instead, leave judgment to God he is more competent. He is all wise. We are not. But do good instead. Be not overcome of evil. We're going to confront evil. Evil is going to come at us in this world. But overcome evil with good. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.15, and this perhaps is a little feather in the cap of that fourth interpretation that a sense of shame might be what is heaped upon the ungodly. He speaks about 
are doing well. That our well-doing is a means of putting to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It may be, you know, when someone sins against you, say they smack you in the face and they're fully expecting you to smack them back and you don't. That that is a harder blow than if you did respond with a smite. For whatever I say, the coals are the requirement. The gospel heart is to do good instead. To overcome evil with good. And if that fourth interpretation is correct, perhaps our gospel response will be used of God to soften the heart of the one approaching us with sin. And if it is not that their heart is softened by such a response, God is able. God is all-knowing. And He will deal with them as He sees fit. But that is not for us. Don't answer sin with sin. It's going to make us very different than the unsaved right there. Leave judgment to God. The unregenerate mind says, well, who's God? Maybe He's not going to do what I think needs to be done. The regenerate heart says, I can trust God. Do good instead. Bear a testimony in this world in such a way that if there's any conscience left in the ungodly at all, they'll be put to silence by your not answering sin with sin. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we come and ask the help of Your Spirit. Perhaps indeed it comes to us to understand something of the spirit of these words. It is the outliving of them that requires such great help. And yet You give help. You give of Your Spirit. So let us walk in the Spirit that we might not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Lord, give grace in the application of these admonitions to us. Help us with greater understanding and even with greater joy to rightly treat our neighbor. We pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.